Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc. Today we're kicking off a brand new series that we're calling Now What? Where we are talking about what does it look like to have a daily growing relationship with God? What does it look like to have a daily growing relationship with God? Um, Every relationship, no matter what it is, on whatever level, has to have some defining moments. It has to have a defining moment. How many of you remember um, when you were dating, some of you, maybe you are now, or when you were younger, having a DTR? Anybody remember the DTR? Just willing to acknowledge that? Okay, how many of you have no idea what a DTR is? All right, a lot of you. Okay, awesome. You guys are just totally out of loop. DTR is a defining the relationship talk, okay? Does that help anybody? Like, does that, is that a phone call you had this past week? Okay. Is that a text message conversation that you remember back in high school? Okay. Where are we? Do you like me? Circle yes or no. Okay. All right. Maybe that's a third grade DTR talk, but... We've all had a DTR talk on some level. I was thinking back uh, this week about when my wife, Heather, and I first started hanging out in college. Um, she was a freshman. I was a junior. And, and I was watching, but, like, there was this guy that she was talking a good bit to. And, like, I couldn't figure out. Like, I was kind of judging from the outside. Like, did she really like him? Are they just talking? Are they hanging out? And so we would hang out together in a group of friends. There's a whole group of us together. And so as far as she knew, we were just friends. Uh, that was until I invited her to go play tennis one afternoon. And so we, like go out to the tennis court and tennis was her game not my game at all but I was not missing an opportunity to try to impress her a little bit with my world-class athletic ability um, or the opportunity just to spend some time with her and so I'm like all right we're going to the tennis court but I've got some ulterior motives in this uh, but she just thought we were going to play tennis now I'll say this um, she's pretty good at tennis like she's, she's all right but I was able to hang my hang on my own a little bit and so we would battle back and forth she would take the lead I would take the lead and by God's grace all right just in the final moments of this just intense match, um, I I got the final few points in and I actually came out on top and I won. Now, in that moment, I learned that my wife does not like to lose, all right? Uh, And it came out in some visible frustration and I'm like, didn't see that coming, all right? Didn't know you had that in you, Um, but it comes out and so... uh, we uh, finished the match, and I'm walking her back to her dorm room, and as we're walking back to the dorm room, man, I am just wearing myself out. I'm like, oh, you have done it now. Like, it is over. You've demolished any chance of going anywhere with her. Like, it's not happening. One, she's not going to hang out with you again. Like, you just go ahead and write that off. And two, she's chasing old boy. Like, she's going after the other dude. You don't have a chance. And in that moment, man, I was just beating myself up. And so I had to do what I had to do. Okay, and so in that moment, I just went for it. I mean, like I dove two feet in full body and I went, hey, what's up with you and old guy? Like, like, well, just where are you? Do, do you like him? Circle yes or no. Okay. Where are you? And so I kind of caught her off guard because she was kind of stuttering a little bit. And, and then she finally gets it out. And she's like, no, like, we're just friends. I've known him for a long time. Like, there's nothing there. And so I took the opportunity to capitalize on that moment. And I was like, well, let me just let you know, like, I'm interested in more than friends. Like, it wasn't about tennis today. It was a lot about you. Okay. And so just quick relationship note for you guys, if you're in dating, okay, on the first date or two or four or 12, like, let her win. Like, just let her win, okay? Whether it's bowling, basketball, tiddlywinks, jacks, like, just, yeah, yeah, babe, you, you're number one. Uh, thank goodness I learned a lot from uh, that day at the tennis courts, and so four years later, I got the opportunity to put a ring on her finger and call her my wife. Um, but that day at the tennis courts was a defining moment in our relationship. It was a DTR kind of day. And so today, uh, we're kicking off a brand new series talking about what does it look like to have a relationship with God? 
Now, for some of you over the last year, maybe over the last two years, or maybe over the last five years that we've been a body of believers, um, you've begun a relationship with God. You've stepped in to a relationship with God. But maybe you're asking the question, now what? Like, what, what do I do now? For some of you, maybe for 20 years or more, you've claimed to be a Christian. And you go, yeah, like, like, yeah I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. But maybe if you got real honest today, your relationship, your journey with God has grown really stagnant. And so now you're kind of asking the question, now what? Like, like, now what do I do? And so today I want us to begin identifying where we are. I want us to kind of have a DTR assignment and conversation and experience with God today. We define where we are. Because the reality is before we can determine where we're going, we have to first determine where does the relationship sit right now? And so for us, what we're going to do today is I want us to take some time to dive into what does it look like to really trust Jesus with your life? What is square one even all about? Now, I want to say this at the beginning of today, that my goal in our conversation today is not to cause you to doubt your salvation if you're in Christ today. That's not where I'm headed. Now, I'll go ahead and let you know that some of the things I'm going to say today, uh, they're going to be pretty weighty. So if you're new to our house, it's not quite like this every single week, but they're going to carry some weight. Uh, But we're a house that exchanges ideas for truth. And we stand on the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit. And so today I want you to kind of do a little checkup to find out where you are in this relationship with God. And my hope is that by the end of the day that you would have examined your heart, all of us, that you would have examined your life through the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit to find out where you are in your relationship with God. Now, here's what I'm going to give us. I'm going to give us three different confessions and one action. The confessions are going to belong to us. The action's going to belong to God. And my hope is that if you're in Christ today, as you see these confessions, you're going to go, yes, like I remember when that began to happen in my life. Yes, I remember making that declaration to God. And you would be encouraged. For some of you who maybe are not in a relationship with God, or, or maybe you're on that fence trying to figure out, like, is this, he really worth following with my life? Today, I pray that these three confessions, I've prayed specifically for you, that these three confessions would become your prayer and your response back to God. So if you're taking notes today, uh, the first thing that we've got to understand is why do we even need a relationship with God? Like, yeah, we're at church today, but why do you really need a relationship with God? And so here's our first confession. If you're taking notes, it's this. God, I admit my core problem. God, I admit my core problem. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we're all pretty familiar with the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, that God creates, and he puts them in the garden, and the garden was perfect. And then what does God say to them? He says, don't touch this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that one tree. And what do Adam and Eve do? Got to touch the tree, got to touch the tree, all right? Kind of like your two-year-old. And in that moment, as they denied what God said and disobeyed what God said, the core problem of our world was birthed which is a three-letter word, sin. See, the core problem of you and me and of the world that we live in is sin. And God's Word explains what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. It wasn't just the kickoff story to the book, but it was the, what trickled down to you and me. It had an effect on all of us. And here's what Paul writes in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, and death came through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because how many sinned? All sin. 
See, the core problem of Adam became the core problem of you and me, sin. And some of you are going, I know this, I know this. Here's why I'm telling you this. As a part of my job, I get the opportunity to have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people about their story. One of the questions that I ask almost everyone is, hey, tell me, why do you need Jesus? Why do you need a relationship with Jesus? And 90-ish percent of people will respond with this answer. Well, man, my marriage is just all jacked up, and I really need Jesus to fix my marriage. Or, man, my my finances, they're out of whack, and I just really need Jesus to provide. Or, man, my my health situation, or my job, or my family, or my kids, and I just really need Jesus to kind of come in and do this and make my life better. Now, let me answer this question for you. Can Jesus do that? Absolutely. Man, he is sovereign over all things, and he is powerful, and he can do impossible things. He surely can. But here's where the problem comes. The core problem of you and me is not the surface level things of life that we see. It's the reality that at the bottom of who we are sits sin. And sin is ultimately the thing that causes all of these things to happen. And so the core problem of us of why do we need Jesus is not to make life better, but the core problem is because we are a sinner in need of Christ who is a Savior. And that's what we must all understand. You see, sin is when man substitutes himself for God. Sin is when man substitutes himself for God. Ultimately, every time we sin, we think, we say, we do something that displeases God, as we teach our kids, What we are saying to God is, God, I'm a better God than you are. Like, I know you're creator, and yeah, I tell you, like, you're the big man upstairs and all that, but like, I'm going to do things my way. I know you got your plan, but I can do it better. And so if, if that's an addiction, what we're saying through that addiction is, hey, in this moment, like, this is what fulfills me better than you do. If it's greed or the chase of more, like if I could just get more money, more stuff, like, we, we would be happier. What we're saying is, that's a better God than you are. That's what we're saying. Or maybe it's in the area of acceptance. Like, if, man, if I could just be perceived with this image or, like, be a part of this group or, like, if they could just see me as this kind of mom or this kind of dad, like, oh, then I would be fulfilled. What we're saying is that fulfilling feeling, which is very temporary, we're saying that is better than you are, God. See, in sin, man substitutes himself where only God belongs. In sin, this core problem that we have brings some side effects. Okay, just like every sickness, there are side effects. I'm going to give you quite a few of those. Here's number one. First, sin blinds our minds. Sin blinds our minds. We claim to be wise, but we are not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that people without God's spirit consider the things of God to be foolish. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a coworker, classmate who goes, man, like, like church stuff? Oh, like, I don't really need that. Like the Bible? Man, that's just like an old book. Are like, you really trying to live by that? Okay, why do they do that? Because sin has blinded their minds. So sin blinds our minds. Sin also causes our emotions to be distorted. Sin causes our emotions to be distorted. You want to know why someone cut you off in traffic last week and told you that you were number one, but they didn't really mean it? Want to know why? Sin, because sin is in their heart and sin distorts our emotions. Sin causes our bodies to be defiled. Sin causes our bodies to be defiled. Romans chapter one, verse 24, Paul gives this instruction. He says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, in this case, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying, that God calls our bodies a temple. But in sin, when we walk in sin, we do things with our body that God never intended for us. So sin causes our bodies to be defiled. Sin causes our wills 
to be distorted. It causes our will to be distorted. The majority of people wake up every day not going like, man, can't wait to see how I can please God today. Like, I just can't wait to serve and give my life and humility. I can't wait to do that. No, what, what happens? We wake up and we go like, man, how can I make this day and leverage it in my favor? Because why? Because our, sin causes our wills to be distorted because there's a sinful flesh that we're battling. And then finally, sin leaves our relationships broken. Sin leaves our relationships broken. Therefore, we have divorce and broken parent-child relationships and friendships that fall apart. And your boss gets on your very last nerve. And how awesome was it last Christmas to be cooped up with your extended family for three days? Okay, some of you wanted to poke your eyeballs out and leave after two hours. Why is that? Because there's sin. And sin breaks the relationships because it's the core problem of who we are. But here's what we realize. Sin not only has these emotional and physical effects that we just talked about, but even greater, sin has some spiritual effects in our life. I want to give you a couple of those. Now, these are a little bit deeper. One, sin leaves us condemned before God. Sin leaves us condemned before God. Here's what um, John chapter 3 verse 18 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So sin condemns us before God, and sin separates us from, from God. Sin separates us from God. How many of you remember when you were little, like you went to the mall or you went to Wally World, and you got lost from your parents? Like, isn't that a scary feeling? Mr. Miss Smith, would you come over to Frozen Foods? Your son is over here crying like a baby. Okay, like, and mom and dad got really embarrassed, and you did too. Like, that's such a worst feeling as a kid to be separated from the feeling of stability. But sin separates us from God. And maybe for some of you, if you got real honest, maybe for some of you, that's kind of what it feels like right now. That you're walking around the big Wally World of life without your parent. And God has a plan, but you've run from it. And sin, it condemns us and it separates us from God. But then here's the, the ultimate bad news, okay? Sin destines us for an eternity apart from God in hell, and sin leaves us spiritually dead. That's what I want us to, cap- to capitalize on. Sin leaves us spiritually dead. Here's two places in Scripture that point that out. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this, As for you, you were, what does it say? dead in your transgressions and sins. Romans 6.23, the beginning of that verse says this, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Here's where we get this confused. The greatest effect of sin is not that it makes us bad. In our culture, we look at people and we're like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Like you cheated on him. You're bad. Okay. Sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. And it's much worse. It's much worse. See, the core problem is we all have it, and it leaves us broken and without hope and without direction and without life. So we have to ask the question. Like, that's so hopeless. We have to ask the question, what can save us from that? What can save us from that? Psychology? Psychotherapy? Self-help? Like, there's a lot of those at the bookstore. Uh, like that blog post that told you how to be a better mom or dad or student or employee or whatever that's getting shared on Facebook. How about this? Like just immerse yourself in a whole bunch of church activities, hoping it rubs off on you. No, what we must understand from scripture is that our solution is not self-help and it's not religious routines. The answer is not attend church more, sing more songs, try to live better than the majority of your friends on social media. No, what we must realize is the answer is not try harder. 
Why is that? Because a lot of us have been trying really, really hard for a really long time, and we keep ending up at the same dead end. For some of you, it's a year later. For some of you, it's good for five years, and then it falls apart. Maybe some of you, it's five days, and it's just... Try harder leaves us defeated because we can't do it on our own, and our problem is much deeper than trying harder because we're dead people in need of life. And last time I checked, dead people aren't getting many jobs. Their resume is very short. See, a dead person doesn't need to try harder. You know what a dead person needs? A dead person needs a new heart. A dead person needs a new heart. So we go, God, I acknowledge my core problem is sin, and I got it, and it's in me, and it's jacked me up, and it's separated me from you. And so here's the second confession that we make to God. God, change my heart. God, change my heart. Now I want to read you some verses from Titus chapter 3, and maybe you can put yourself in this place. It's going to start with hopelessness, and then there's going to become hope on the backside. Uh, Read with me, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. It says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Like, that's the core problem part. Verse 4, here comes hope. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Remember that part whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, some versions that you read in verse 5, it says, through the washing of regeneration. Um, Now, what does that big churchy word mean? Okay, regeneration simply means that God gives you a new heart. God births in you a new heart. See, when we begin to follow Jesus, it's not an outside-in change. It's an inside-out. Out. It's not like, hey, change all these behaviors, stop all these habits, and then God loves me, and then I love him. No, it's, man, I come to Jesus as I am, and he fixes my core problem inside, and then my behavior begins to change. And when God changes our heart, God doesn't just improve our old nature, but he gives us an entirely new nature. It's not a remodel. It's a total, complete rebuild. And the verse that our house is founded on is this right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is still hanging around. The old we're still dabbling in. No, it says the old has gone and the new is here. He's a God of new life and new beginnings. And when you're born again, as scripture says, you realize this world is not what you were meant for. And the things of this world are temporary and fleeting and they will not eternally fulfill But the desires of your heart begin to change into, God, how can I live my life to leverage it to honor you? Big difference. See, for some of us, especially in our Bible Belt culture, like we kind of think of it this way. We're like, well, there's this one line and like it's going to heaven. And then there's this other line and it's going to hell. And we look at the two lines and we're like, we go to church and we hear about the two different groups. And we're like, okay, well, like that doesn't sound very hopeful. I don't know that I want to do like the lake and the fire and the Satan thing. Like over here. Yep. Okay. It sounds like the, the end results are really good. Like heaven and gold streets. I don't know. We've got to see that when we get there. But like, I'm going to choose this line because I don't really like what's going on in that line. But we stand here. Okay. And so we, so we make this decision and we stand here. But we look over at this line and we're going, man, it looks like they're having a whole lot more fun than I am. Like, oh, goodness, like, I would love to be a part of that. But no, 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 don't do that. Don't do this. Like, I can't. Here's the reality. That's not salvation. Because when God comes in and he gives us a new heart, he gives us new desires. 
and we look at the things of this world and we go, yes, God can put me here and he can give me joy and happiness, but that is not what fulfills me. It is what Christ does who fulfills me. I want you to imagine for a minute that like we got started with the gathering today and you guys sang and you engaged and the band was awesome and then it came time for me to step up and like I don't step up and I'm not here and y'all wait and like somebody calls me and texts me and I, I run in and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, whoo, like it's been a long morning and I know I'm late and I apologize. I'm really sorry about that. But like, I'm here now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's wild. I was coming to the building and I was on highway 80 and I had a flat tire. And so I had to stop and pull over cause I couldn't make it any further. And so I got out and I was walking around my car to the flat and I looked up and like, I could, I had no idea it was coming. And here comes this semi truck, just booking it down highway 80. And there I am. And I couldn't run and get out of the way and just boom like he just he he plowed me over like he just totally wiped me out and there I am like like it hurt it it hurt a lot like right here it hurt a lot because he just knocked me down and and then I dust I dusted myself off though but then I got back up and and I changed my tire and I hopped in the car and I drove here and and I made it like it's, it's a long morning but I made it if I gave you that story, a lot of you would just walk right out that back door. You would. You'd be like, uh-huh, it's official. He, he is crazy. Like, I, I needed confirmation. That gave it to him. Why? Because when you get hit by a semi-truck, you look different. <laughs> when you get hit by a semi-truck, you look different. And all the more so when the God of the universe changes your heart. You look different. He changes the desires within you. So the question that we all must consider today is, has God changed your heart? Not, have you showed up for a church gathering? Like, you're all, check that box. Not, can you sing the songs, quote a few verses, pray before meals, have an emotional experience when you're in third grade? No, like, has God given you a new heart? Has he? So we say, God, I acknowledge my, my core problem. It's sin, and it separates me from you. And God, I say today, would you change my heart? Would you give me a new heart? And then there's a third confession today. God, help me believe. God, help me believe. Now, this third confession is built on two words. They're churchy words, but I want to break them down. Repent and believe. We say, God, help me believe. It's built on repent and believe. Both of those are gifts from God. Here's what God's word says. Mark chapter one, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. And he gave him this instructions. What does it say? Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, repent and believe. So once we've acknowledged we got this problem, once we've asked God, give me a new heart, we realize we got to walk through repent and believe. Now, let's break them down, each one of them. Repent, what does that mean? Repent or repentance means to turn. Now, in this case, what are we turning from? What's the core problem? Sin. So we're turning from sin to Christ. Now, there's three different statements I want to give you under repentance because there's some call to action on our part. Here's the number one. Repentance involves acknowledgement of sin. It involves acknowledgement of sin. In Psalm 51, David, a guy who's called a, God after, a man after God's own heart, had a whole lot of jacked up stuff in his life. He prayed this prayer in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you and you only God have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. In other words, he wasn't trying to defend himself anymore. And verse six, or excuse me, verse five says, surely I was sinful at birth. I've had the core problem since the beginning. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
David had not admitted his knowledge of his problem, that he had sin. He acknowledged his sin. And the same thing has to be true for us. Let me just say something to my boys in the house. All right, we don't like to admit when we're wrong. I don't. You don't. But in repentance, it requires an acknowledgement of our sin. But just acknowledging our sin is not repentance. Here's the second part. Repentance also requires sorrow over sin. It's sorrow over sin. It's not, I'm sorry I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar. Like, that's, that's my four-year-old. Oh, daddy, I'm sorry. Oh, daddy, I'm sorry. He's, he's not sorry. No, he's sorry he got caught. Sorrow over sin means that we come to the reality to go, like, man, I have a core problem, and it's sin, and I chose the opposite way, and, I, and I've disobeyed a holy and a righteous God. And we all have. So it's, it's a sorrow over sin. But here's the third and final part, and it's probably the hardest part, Finally, repentance means fleeing from sin. It means fleeing from sin. In 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, God gives this warning to his people. Check it out. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and flee from their sin, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. God says, when my people turn or flee from their sin, then I will hear them and forgive them. See, repentance involves acknowledgement of sin, sorrow over sin, and fleeing from sin. Anything short of three for three is not repentance. You can't go two for three and still dabble in it. You can't not acknowledge it. Three for three is repentance. So part of God help me believe is God help me repent. Next part is, help me believe. Belief, which we can just correlate with faith. And in Scripture it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God. So here's the three parts of believing. We had three parts of repentance. Here's the parts of faith that's called on us. First, faith involves knowledge about Christ. Knowledge about Christ. John 8, 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He you will indeed die in your sins. Faith involves knowledge about Christ. Quite honestly, I believe everybody in the room's probably got that one down. Like, like you're at a church building today, this morning, you got up to, came, to come, you maybe mumbled the songs, like you believe that there is a Christ. You believe that Jesus is real. I'll give you that one. But again, just knowledge about Christ is not enough, okay? Just ask any intoxicated guy. He's probably acknowledging there's Jesus at that moment, all right? Second part of faith involves this right here agreement with Christ, agreement with Christ. Not that we just know who he is, but we stand with him. John 20, 31 says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So faith involves agreement with Christ, meaning not just that you believe that he exists, that like he was a guy somewhere in history, there's a big book written about him, it's number one seller. No, it's believing that he came with a mission and a purpose as a savior for you, and that he alone has the power over sin and death and hell and the grave. And so it's not just agreement with him, or excuse me, it's not just knowledge of him, but it's agreement with him. But there's a final part of, of faith, and this, this is so important. The final part of faith is this, that we would trust in Christ. That we would trust in Christ. Um, I've demonstrated it uh, this way before, and man, it's just so good. I wanted to do it again today. Um, now, I could come into this room today, and you got to run with me here, okay? Run with me. This could get awkward. Uh, but I could come into this room today, and I could go, man, like, look at that chair. Like, that, 
that looks like a really good chair. Like, I, I think it's probably a sturdy chair. It's clearly a black chair. Uh, it's got some holes in it, a little ventilation going on. All right. Uh, like that's, but I'm thinking that's a pretty good chair. Like, I would recommend that chair to you. I could go so far as to sing some songs about the chair. Again, I told you it's going to get awkward, okay? But I could go sing a little song, a little ditty about the chair, tell you how great it is. Um, I could give you some facts about the chair, tell you about where it was manufactured, uh, some of the parts that made it up, how much we paid for it to get it here, maybe even how long it's been in the building. Um, and then we could even come up here together, maybe just a little eight, nine, ten of you, and we could have a little small group around the chair. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, you're going, like, he's, he's gone. He's a little office rocker. But we could talk about the chair. But here's, here's where I'm going with this. That means nothing to you. That means nothing to you until I bend my knees and transfer the weight of who I am into the chair. Because at that point, you know that I trust the chair. Because if I'm going to stay up, it's because of the chair. And here's where that kind of rubs off on us Sometimes. For so many of us, man, we can do all the religious motions and we can acknowledge that Christ exists and we can acknowledge that he came as a savior and we could say all these great things and we could show up at the church gatherings and we could sing the right songs and try to live the right life outside of here. But where the kink comes in is for so many of us, we are unwilling to bend our knees and transfer the weight of our life onto Jesus. Why? Because that means that he has full control of our relationships, of our career, of our family, of our finances, of our health, of our life. And for so many people, they're just not fully convinced. I'll sing the songs, but I'm just not fully convinced that Jesus is worth me trusting the weight and the direction and the plan of my life to. And here's what we have to understand today. God help me believe requires not just acknowledging there is a Jesus, not just agreement with him and who he is, but it requires the full transferring of the weight of our life onto him, believing that his plan is better. His plan is better. But here's the deal for some folks. They go, well, like, I want to acknowledge Jesus as Savior. Like, he's good, and he came and rescued, and he's a champion, but I don't really want to make him Lord and what that looks like is we take these little different parts of our life and we're like, I'm going to just keep this part to me. Like, I'm just going to do this kind of part on my own and just kind of be my thing. And like, like God, I give you all the rest of that. Like, you have 95%, but I'm just going to hang on to this little thing. But here's what Mark 1 said to us a while ago. Faith and repentance, believe and repent cannot be separated. They must go together. And scripture says when they happen, when there's faith and when there's repentance, this is what happens. Romans 10 verse 9, Paul says this, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified or made right. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So the third confession today is God help me believe. Help me repent. Help me in faith to trust you, to transfer the full weight of who I am onto you. So we've th- seen three confessions that lay before all of us today. And I believe that Scripture tells us that when those confessions become not just an idea, but they become the true desire and prayer of our life, that God responds with one action that changes everything. And this is what begins 
the relationship so that we can get to the place of going, now what? All right? Here's the final action of God is that God changes your status. God changes your status. The day at the tennis court with my friend girl led to a few months later me becoming her boyfriend, which a few years later led me to becoming her husband. My status drastically changed from friend guy at the tennis court to husband for life. And I believe that for some people in the room today, God desires to change your status. Now, before we can get to the final part, we have to go back to the beginning for a second where we acknowledge our core problem is what? Sin. Our core problem is sin. And what we read earlier in Romans 6 is that our core problem, sin, came with a punishment and a penalty that was death. Romans 6 said the wages of sin is death. Not just a physical death, we all get there, but an eternal death that separates us from God. In other words, just to plainly put it, all of us, when we sin, ultimately got stuck on death row. Without promise of bond, there was a penalty we could not pay, there was a debt that we owed that we could not pay to get us out. There was no hope, because God's law does not tolerate sin. And so therefore we became condemned two different ways. I want you to see this real quick, okay? We were, we were and are condemned because of our immorality, the things that we do that are against God. Now I'm about to read a list that Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 29. You can read it and you just go like, yep, that's our world right there, okay? So read it with me, look at it. Romans 1, 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murderer, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It's a weighty list. Very true, though. Verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree, here's where it gets scary for the church, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And God condemns our immorality. Okay? That's for all of us. And like, if we get honest, we look at that, we go like, oh, duh. Like, yeah, God doesn't like those things. He's not down with that. But, but here's the other part. We were and are also condemned because of our morality, the good things that we attempt. Here's what Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and the wind, or like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. What is he saying? Here's what God's word is saying. That on our best day, and our best moment, we attempted the most righteous, holy, generous, uh, churchy thing that we could think of. When held up next to the holiness and the perfection of God, it was like a filthy rag. It's hard to digest because we're like, do good, try harder. And Paul says we're condemned not only because of our immorality, but we're condemned because of our morality. And so here's the question that we have to land on today. How in the world could a holy and perfect and righteous God invite you and me into a relationship? Like we were all these things and he's not. How does he invite us in? And here's what scripture says 
that God did to change our status. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We're going to go back to it and add on to it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25, God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as a payment, a full payment through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's it. That's the greatest moment in history where God looked at us hopeless, without life, without parole, and he looked at us and he says, I desire to change your status. And here's the crazy part about what God did. The paradox is that God took the greatest symbol of sin and shame, the cross, and he flipped the script and he made it the greatest symbol of hope and life for all who would believe. And through the cross, God says, I alone can change your status. And here's what Romans says. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And although sin had given us an eternal status of condemned before God, Jesus stepped in and he changed our status. And when a person repents and believes, God not only gives them a new heart, that's really good, but he changes their status. And he takes the unrighteous things that we had done and he puts them on Jesus. And he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he transfers the accounts and he puts it on us. And he changes our status. As we close today, I want to give you just a quick snip, snippet of my story. Um, all of my growing up years, my dad served full time on church staffs. And uh, he was not the lead teaching pastor, but he was one of the other pastors. And so we were there all the time. Like, I mean, I was a part of a church since nine months before I was born. All right. Some of you catch that later. Um, like I, I just basically lived at the church building. Like I had the perfect Sunday school attendance award. I was there for every event, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If we had like knitting class on Tuesday, I was showing up, sitting in the back. All right, like I was there for everything. I knew everyone's name. I knew all the songs in kids' church. I could quote you a bunch of Bible verses. People knew who I was. I was about as close to the things of God as a person could possibly be. But in April of 1993, I want to tell you what reality hit my world. That although my dad was a pastor, and although I knew all the right answers, and although everyone saw me as the good little preacher's kid, I had a core problem. And it was that I had sin in my life that separated me from a holy and a righteous God. And the good little preacher's kid was sitting on death row, guilty, condemned, and without hope of getting out. And there was no religious motion that I could walk through that could change my status. And all of that came crashing down on me one night in my bedroom in April of 1993. And in that moment, I responded by confessing to God, God, I acknowledge that I have sin in my heart. And I have a core problem that separates me from you. I told him I was desperate without him. I asked him to change my heart. And I said, God, I desire for you to help me believe, help me to turn from who I am in sin and help me to trust you in faith and put the full weight of my life on you. And I'll tell you that in that moment, not only did God give me a new heart, but God changed my status from condemned and guilty before God to righteous and holy with God. 
And here's my question to everybody in the room today. Has that happened for you? Has it happened for you? If you got really honest with God today and you had a DTR, defining the relationship moment with him, where do you stand? Middle school, high school student, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. Where do you stand? Have you acknowledged the core problem of your life? Have you repented and believed in who he is? Has he changed your heart? And have you allowed Jesus the Redeemer to change your status from dead and guilty to made alive in him? Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.